You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we just praise you and we thank you, Lord. You alone are worthy. We cannot say enough about Jesus. The first and the last, the beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega, the Greek alphabet. The sovereign of the universe. The Bible said the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten. John the beloved says in 1 John that we handled him, we touched him. And so, Lord, we praise you today and we thank you and we give you all glory for already how you've spoken to us. And we pray, dear Lord, now as we go to your word that you'll wrap your arms around us and help us to understand this book of Job. For some in this room, they may be hurting, may be discouraged. For some who may be listening on the website, their their lives are just a wreck. They're trying to make sense out of their life right now and they're just, they're just in a deep, dark valley or so it seems. But may they never forget that Jesus, you said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for thou art with me. So Lord, may we learn from Job. May we learn the lessons and the mistakes of his friends. Be better counselors to people who are hurting. And God, I ask you to cleanse me, to forgive me. Any thought, any deed, any word. And let me be a vessel, dear Lord, that can be used by you today and open up the hearts of people. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Job. We'll be looking at Job chapter 4. And thank you, praise team. Job chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And I realize, you know, we're going through the CBT, the Chronological Bible, and probably right now you're going, wow, what laborsome reading as you're reading about how the tabernacle was made and the curtain rods and the curtains and all of that. You may think, wow, this is a lot of meticulous detail. Well, God was getting ready to ask the nation of Israel to do something that would require an enormous level of obedience. These are shadows of what the Bible says in Hebrews are a picture of heaven. But, uh, you know, John Williams said this morning in our deacons meeting, He said, you know, when we leave our children and go somewhere, even though it is a grandparent, we give them a long list of things to do and what to do, what not to do, what songs to sing. He just kind of went through the lineup. And so uh, bear with it as you're going through CBT and and stay with it. If you get behind, uh, try to catch back up. I titled this sermon today, Spiritual Gas. Eliphaz had a case of uh, what some people used to call years ago the vapors, spiritual gas. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit, and I'm not talking about what keeps your car moving. I'm talking about self-righteous gas. You ever known anybody that had spiritual gas? I mean just that self-righteous gas. Well, anyway, that's what we're talking about today. So in Job chapter 4, we're going to read today about one of his friends who comes. Now, in the latter part of Job chapter 3, the Bible says that God, uh, you know, allowed Satan to bring all this heartache, all of this struggle, all of this suffering in the life of Job. And then Job's friends come, and in the latter part of chapter 3, For one week they sit there and they just basically mourn and agonize alongside of Job. They're just there beside him. And one of these figures, one of these personalities, one of these friends is a man by the name of Eliphaz. Now in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, let's stand in honor of God's Word, that'd be good. Then Eliphaz the Temanite, 
replied, Job, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how, how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Hang on to that one. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the right upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they are destroyed. At the blast of His anger they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now here he goes. He's getting ready to have a little spiritual gas here. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. Spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before me, before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with air, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces. I notice they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tents pulled up so that they die without wisdom? Aren't you glad he wasn't your counselor? Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. We pray, dear Lord, you'll give us insight through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in the sweet, precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. One of the things that to me was one of the most eerie things that happens in Zimbabwe, and I remember it when I was a missionary there, uh, the first time that my vehicle was used for a hearst. As a missionary with a vehicle, uh, sometimes your vehicle would be used for her. So I went to this home, I picked up a body, we put it in my vehicle in just a wood box, kind of cradling it somehow in there among all of the passengers in that vehicle. We were all packed in there with this box, we were heading to the cemetery. When we got to stand, this was Chitanguiz out in the township there, where Jaina and Midian and all of them do much of some of their work. As we were there, when I got there, we were actually in a queue. Now, a queue in European terms means that you were in a line, single file, you were waiting. So we unloaded this box, unloaded our, unloaded this body of this dear sweet man who had been a, a, a great member there in the church, and we waited in line behind one party after another waiting to bury the dead. Uh, there were, they would go every day and they would dig uh, just a row of graves and then one party would go in, have a short service. They would bury their dead. Next party would go in. Next party would go in. And so we would wait till our, our turn. One of the things that bothered me the most was the wailing and the crying that the women would do. Some of it was, it, it was almost, even out in villages, it was almost a frightening sound when you would hear it coming across the hills of Zimbabwe. This guttural, deep sound of women who were mourning. It was an unbelievable scene when they would bury their dead. And when I looked at this and I began to read this, I thought the Middle East is so much like Africa in their grieving the loss of somebody. I wrote down four statements. One, have you ever been the recipient of bad counsel? And by bad counsel, I don't mean painfully 
something that is painfully true that you are guilty of, but counsel that is based on an unsound premise, a deduction that is not true about your life, and therefore, as this person is speaking to you, it almost sounds derogatory or slanderous. You ever been there? I remember, and I battled for many years. In July 1994, I got sick. I take medication every day. If I do not take this medicine every day, I'm sick. I remember preaching at a, 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 a prominent First Baptist Church here in the Metro Jackson area. I preached there three Sundays straight. And afterwards, a man came to me, and he knew of my illness, and he said, "Have you? is there an area of disobedience? Maybe there's sin in your life. Maybe there's something wrong. And he just literally began to do a spiritual autopsy on me in that church. Now, at first I was nice. I understood that he was asking, could this be due to sin or rebellion in your life? But I knew me. And that was not the case. And so after a while, this man became self-righteous. He began to be offensive. You ever been there? Secondly, not only does this form of counsel hurt, it doesn't help. If anything, it's, it's painful. I not only forgot it, I never forgot it. Sheila never forgot it. Oh, to this day, if we see this man, it's like darts coming out of our eyes. Why? Because critical. We see the mistakes in every friend's counsel. A false conclusion sometimes can be used by the enemy to further discourage us from where we already are. Is that not the case? We have to be very careful in our counsel. Thirdly, when you come to this chapter here, you are beginning to be introduced to the characters, these friends around Job who are bringing counsel into his life. And I believe that all four, ultimately there are four counselors, they were brought to Job by genuine love and concern. They are overwhelmed. In the latter part of chapter 3, when they arrive, they are overwhelmed by the appearance of Job. He looks like the skeletal remains of a man they once knew. They are literally sitting in silence because they don't know what to say. You ever been there? You ever been with somebody, I heard from a friend of mine this week, whose only son drowned in the Ross Barnett Reservoir. I'd put a comment on Facebook, and he back and forth with me a little bit, a great man. He was president in New Orleans. Andy, he was the president of the student body. He was probably one of the most gifted preachers that New Orleans had produced. Great man of God. He married Sheila and I. When his son while he and his wife were packing, going back to the seminary, his son with a little Fisher Price toy was sitting there at the reservoir. There is, her parents lived on a houseboat. He had that Fisher Price little play fishing rod, and he undoubtedly dropped it. He leaned over trying to get it, fell into the water. By the time they found him, he had quit breathing. They did CPR, but he remained in almost a vegetation state until he died at the age of five. I remember when there came the point the hospital sent him to their home. They were in, a, in one of the state buildings down there in New Orleans. They were in this little apartment. And I would sit there and I would look across this little boy who was hooked up to stuff. And they had learned how to feed him through the tube in his stomach. They had learned how to watch his oxygen, how to clean out his trach. Because I had worked with an ambulance service, I knew that. And I would go there and I would sit across from them and I'd look at them and I would say... Nothing. I didn't know what to say. Sometimes that's the best advice we can give. And let me remind you of some parents. Let me remind you parents. You better take every opportunity to spend time with your children. And when you're with them, you be with them a hundred percent. You give them the time and the attention. You focus on them. Because that day, he never thought that that would be the last day that he would ever have a conversation with his child again. You do not take, even with a toddler or a young child, that opportunity not to fellowship with them and to bleed that moment for everything that you can get out of it. Now when I looked at these individuals, I thought, what did they do right? 
Because I think, first of all, I think they did some things right. I think they recognized the depth of Job's suffering and they evidenced it by two things. First of all, they expressed sorrow. They sat down next to Job in that Middle Eastern practice. They put on, I believe, sackcloth. They covered themselves in dust and ashes and they grieved right along with, with Job. Secondly, they evidenced a stability. They basically said, Job, we're here. We're not going to leave you. We're going to stay by your side. They took off time. They cleared their schedule. Listen, are you willing, would you be willing if a friend was hurting bad enough to take your vacation, set aside time, go to that individual and say, I'm here for the duration. I've taken my vacation to grieve to stand with you in this time of need. Wow. You know, I thought to myself, sometimes we need to express sorrow along with other people. We need to express a stability. They were there. They were one week off work, basically setting aside all their obligations just so they could sit with a friend. Would you be willing to do that? Would I be willing to do that? Because listen to me. If our Western culture has failed, we have failed to know how to grieve the loss of the people that we love. In our Western society, we go pick out, we do pre-arrangements, or we go down, we pick out the coffin, we put mom and dad in it, we put grandparent in it, we put child in it, we allow, we, we do a, a two-day fiasco where people file by, and they file by, and they utter some little something, and they look at us kind of in a stupefied state, they don't know what to say. We have a little 20 minute in the chapel, and then we let people go to grieve and to work through the loss themselves. I remember years ago when I was a chaplain in the military. I remember years ago in the first church I pastored, and I was also a chaplain here in Jackson with the MP battalion down here. I had I'd been busy that weekend when I got a call from a woman, a dear friend, a person who's still a friend to this day. She said, Brother Jeff, can you go to university? I see you. My niece, coming home from college, ran into the back of a, of a trailer, a soybean trailer, where you haul beans. It had been left on the side of the road. The college student on her way home had plowed into the back of that. That trailer was, had no tag, never was claimed. I went to that ICU and the only time, I've been, a, I've been with an ambulance service for years, I've been around sick people and hurting people. When I walked into that ICU unit and I saw that college student, I literally nearly fainted. I had to go down on my knees and sit on the floor. Nurses walked by and said, are you alright? That young lady died. We did her funeral. And I remember one night late, that same call came. That woman in our church called and said, Brother Jeff, please get to this home. We got to that home. The funeral had been beautiful. Ceremony had been great. Everybody had paid their respects. Mom looked like she was doing fine. But I'll never forget going to that home. It was out in the country, out in an old, lonely part of the country. I turned down this old rutted driveway, an old country driveway. And I, for some reason, it was a cool day and I had my window down. It was night. And I could hear that mom welling and screaming to the top of her lungs. How do you comfort people who have lost? You see, sometimes we need to understand people need to go through grief. And we need to let them. We've culturized. We've made it too nice. We've made it too sweet and pleasant. Only to, even within the church, only to fail to understand that people need to go through this process. Well, this is Job. And now we're introduced to this man by the name of Eliphaz. Now, you won't find Eliphaz in a baby name book. I, I don't think so. And the Bible says that he was a Temanite. He's considered to be the most pre prestigious, the most prominent, the, and, and literally the oldest and the kindest. Albert Barnes said this of Eliphaz. He said, Eliphaz is the kindest because he's the oldest. Now I want you to listen, young people, because what happens when you grow and you get old is life has kicked you around so much that sometimes you make a pretty good counselor. But in our culture today, we don't listen to old people anymore, do we? 
There is a principle here. Life will either better you or bitter you. I'm not saying every old person, people that are over 50, people who have raised their children, who are now being a part of their grandchildren's life. I'm not saying that they're perfect. I'm not saying that they've made mistakes. But you listen closely. I don't want my kids and grandkids to make my mistakes. I'm trying to keep them from going down the same road I came down. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm just simply saying I don't want you to do what I've done. There's been times I've been very honest and open with my own children about skeletons in my closet, things I did wrong that I'm deeply ashamed of. Not every senior adult, not every old person, not any person is, uh, you know, life will either better or bitter you. It softens or it hardens. There's a statement that said the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Some people are old and bitter and cold. But not everybody. I wrote down, perhaps we're like beef. We age as we get, as we age, we get tender. Ever see that? Aged beef. Tender. I wrote down, life is a compilation of questions. When you're young, you think you have all the answers. And as you begin to get older, it becomes a compilation of questions that you're now rushing toward heaven so that you can get the answers because you find out life is not as simple as you thought it was. Young people under 50 years today, we mistake, you mistake information for knowledge. You see, you can pull your phone out and you can get information like that and because you have information, you automatically think that's knowledge, but that's not wisdom. Eliphaz is a Temanite. That means he's a descendant of Esau. He's an Edomian. Herod was an Edomian. Herod was of the same family. He's from Edom. He's a descendant of Esau. In Isaiah 21, 14, Ezekiel 25, 13, the Edomite will soon be destroyed. Eliphaz is a Temanite. A Temanite was recognized for two traits. Number one, Jeremiah 49, 7 says that they were recognized for their wisdom. So in Jeremiah, Jeremiah says men from Teman, a Temanite, these were men. Men from Teman were recognized for their wisdom. Obadiah 9 says they were recognized for their strength. Eliphaz was a no-nonsense, strong, wise man. He's the most recognized, one writer said, most impressive and most important of the four. And yet he makes mistakes. What are they? I think when you look, first of all, you know what Eliphaz was saying? If you look at Job chapter 4, he basically is saying, Job, you've been there for a lot of people in verses 4 and 5. Verse 5, but now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you, you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways, your hope? He begins to speak to Job. He goes down there and he begins to make conclusions about Job. I think what he's saying, I think Eliphaz is saying, people are watching you, Job. You ever had somebody when you're hurting tell you to be careful? Remember your position in the community? Remember your position in the church? Job, keep your composure. But as I said a moment ago, I think one of the problems today in our westernized culture is that everything has to be under control. Some of you are that way about worship. You ever notice how some people just shout? I always love it when some people are in this room. I get excited. I'll hear them shout at some point and it makes me feel better. They just uh, uninhibited. Just free to worship. It's real and it's raw and it's Carries them up. Well, I don't believe in emotions. Well, tell me that when you're at a ball game. Tell me that when you express emotions everywhere but in the church because that's hypocrisy. What Eliphaz was saying to Job is Job, don't be genuine in your suffering. And let me ask you something are you hypocritical in your suffering when you're hurting? I love Eloise. Eloise was an interesting, she's a little bitty small lady. For some of you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know her. But Eliphaz, I mean, uh, Eloise, <laughs> Eloise, and she usually listens by website, so hopefully she won't mind me saying this. But Eloise 
is a, a genuine person, just a joy, just a delight. Worked in our office for years, served in all kinds of different positions. But I remember Eloise talking about a dark time in her life when she was going through a great trial, a great heartache. And an individual in this church said to Eloise, she said, Eloise, let me pray for you. Eloise said, I turned and said, don't pray for me. I don't want your prayer. I don't want to pray right now. And she went on to say, she said, I was angry at God because I was suffering and hurting and this person had no idea what I was going through. She said, the reality was I was angry and disappointed with God. Sometimes our mistake in counseling people who are hurting is we do not allow them to express that hurt, that anger, those emotions. You know, I told you one time or a while back, I said anger is faith. Did you know that? I don't get mad at the Easter Bunny. But I get mad at God. And sometimes people need to be in the midst of that hurting and that pain. And Eliphaz was saying, Job, you're a leader in the community. You're a man of spiritual position. Job, where is your faith? They were basically saying to Job, even after he had lost all of his livelihood, ten children, they were saying to Job, Job, remember who you are. And that's Eliphaz. And that sounds good, but it's just not very healing. You remember in John 11 when Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus? Isn't it strange? Anybody that's ever done memory verses, what's our famous memory verse from John? Jesus what? Jesus what? Right? I mean, you know, we teacher says, okay, we're going to do memory verse today. Who wants to be first? Your hand goes up because you want to beat everybody to that verse. Two words, Jesus wept. But isn't it strange? Isn't that strange? You know, the Bible says, and the Greek is much more demonstrative in its, in, in its, in its description as a, as a language. And you know what it means? It means that Jesus grieved, He wept, He cried, He just agonized. It doesn't mean that His eyes got a little waterly, waterly, watery, that his, a tear kind of trickled down His cheek. It means that He absolutely agonized the, the loss of Lazarus. Now, what's so strange about that? In a moment, he's getting ready to say, Lazarus, come forth. And I love what theologians say. Had he not called Lazarus by name, had he said, come forth, every grave of every man, woman, boy and girl, dead in the dirt, would have rose up. Lazarus, come forth. But he weeps and he agonizes. Why? Because he identifies with the loss and with grief and the wages of sin is death and he realizes the pain and the sorrow and there would come a day when Lazarus would die again and he wouldn't be there. Sometimes we make the mistake of Eliphaz because we just simply say, dry it up, remember who you are, keep the faith. And that's not always the best thing to say. And then in verses 7 through 11, I, I, I called this, in fact, I wrote down here, Eliphaz was somewhat of a spiritual prima donna. If you're pastoring, if you're ministering, if you were a pastor, you would understand this. In about 40 years of ministry, there are some people that are unteachable. Uh, they're already there. Uh, they've reached the platform and they're waiting, they're waiting for all the rest of us to get to where they are. And in some ways, when you look at Eliphaz, this wise man, known for wisdom, known for, for physical strength, this man's man, who has a good handle on life, you get the feeling that he's somewhat like this. That he's kind of a spiritual prima donna, that he basically says, my walk is unique. I have a special relationship with God. I have a special language, a special word. Does that sound familiar? But he makes two mistakes. 
Number one, he focuses on the goodness of the sufferer rather than on the goodness of the Savior. Because in verse 7, he says this. He said, consider now Job. He's talking to Job. He said, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the right, where were the upright ever destroyed? He was basically saying, Job, your character is your hope. R.C. Sproul was asked this question one time. I thought it was good. If you knew him, uh, the, the way I knew him as a, as a professor. He was asked this question one time. R.C. Sproul used to remind me of Columbo. Peter Fall. You remember he had that raincoat on, a cigar? And he had certain mannerisms, and R.C. Sproul's mannerisms were much like Columbo. So when he was teaching uh, a doctoral seminar, it was like, to me, it was like watching the mannerisms of, of, of Peter Falk, of Columbo. And he was a, an interesting, interesting character. But R.C. Sproul was asked one time, why do good men and women suffer? You ever wonder that? We might word it, why do the righteous suffer? But this person said, Dr. Sproul, why do good men and good women suffer? His answer was profound. Listen to what he said. He said, I don't know, but I'll let you know if I meet one. Isn't that good? I don't know, but I'll let you know when I meet one. The danger in counseling is that we focus on our character rather than God. You see, Eliphaz was either focusing on the character of Job or he's focusing on his own character. He's a prima donna. I've come here. I've got the answers. Sometimes I wrote this down in the midst of deep sorrow when I'm in this sanctuary and I'm crying out and welling and it seems to be now more than ever. I don't focus on my character. I focus on God's. Sometimes I remind God of His Word. You were in Sunday school this morning. You remembered Moses? What does Moses do? Moses mediates for the nation of Israel. God says, I tell you, Moses, what I'm getting ready to do. I'm getting ready to leave two million piles of ashes. I'm getting ready to kill these people. I'm getting ready to destroy them. Moses says, God, whoa, God, wait a minute. <laughs> whoa, God. You can't do that. You're a covenant-keeping God. Imagine what your enemies back in Egypt are going to say when they hear that you've killed the nation of Israel. God said, I'm not going to kill all of them. I'll make you, Moses. And I'll make you into a covenant-keeping nation. I'll grow out of you a nation. Moses said, no way. And he gets so bold as he finally says to God, he says, God, if you do that, Remove my name from the book that you're writing. And he's talking about the book of life. Man, what raw, real tenacity as he's sitting there counseling God. Let me tell you something. There are times in your life, and if you're not there, you'll be there one day. When you'll get before God and you'll be in such pain and hurt and sorrow, such brokenness, you'll look up toward God and you'll say, God, you said I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. God, I don't feel you right now. God, I need your presence right now in me. And you promised me, God. God, you said you wouldn't put more on a man than he can bear. God, you promised. George Mueller, who wrote the greatest book, the greatest prayer journal ever been documented, over 26,000 answered prayers when he was asked how he prayed. He said, I take God's Word and send it right back up to heaven. This is a dad. This is a dad. This is Russell on his knees crying out for Junior and saying, God, I pray that Junior will trust in the Lord with all of his heart that he'll lean not to his own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge you, God, and I know you'll direct his path. And this is what you pray to Titus. This is what you pray for Abel and Phoebe. This is what you pray for RJ or whoever it may be. You know what God, you know what Moses was doing? Moses was reminding God not of his character, not Moses' character. Moses never said a word about himself. He was a murderer. He wasn't fit to be a leader. Eliphaz made the mistake of talking to Job about Job's character. He made the mistake of talking about his own character. He failed to talk about the character of God. 
Secondly, he focused on the character of the counselor. Again, Eliphaz himself. Rather than a sovereign God. Eliphaz says, I got a word because I'm such a good person and I have such a great relationship with God. Would you want this man counseling you after you lost your children? Imagine you're at the coffin of your child and somebody comes up and says, last night I woke up out of a sound sleep and it was like something went by my, brush my face. I got goosebumps. My hair was standing on on my arms on end. And begins to give a word that has nothing to do with good counsel or where you are and your sorrow. Was Eliphaz correct about his summation of his character? Let me ask you something. That's a good question. Was Eliphaz correct about the summation of Eliphaz's character? Because Eliphaz puts himself up as a spiritual prima donna. But was he correct? Go to the right and look at go to to the right and look at Job 42. Now think about that question for a moment. Eliphaz basically this man who's trying to counsel Job in his grief and his loss basically is focusing either on the character of Job rather than the character of God or he's focusing on his own character. Spiritual prima donnas. You've got some people, they just think they're there. Uh, and everybody else is kind of behind them. And they're hard, like I said before, they're, they're hard to pastor. But Eliphaz, he, he, he banked a lot on who he was in the eyes of God. But look at, look at Job chapter 42 verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to, let's say it together. He said to Eliphaz, the Temanite. Now, it's interesting, he mentions down there in verse 9, Bildad and Zophar, but he starts off with Eliphaz, and everybody looked this way. You know why? Because Eliphaz was the oldest, which meant he should have been the wisest. Eliphaz was a Temanite, which meant, as we said a moment ago, he was a man of wisdom and a man of strength. But watch what God says about Eliphaz. He said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because why? You have not spoken of me what is right as my... Boy, let me tell you something. There, uh, Andy, there ought to be a seminary class on those words right there. Take that tomorrow to seminary and ask. Because anybody that's read through the book of Job and listened to Job lift his fist up toward the heaven and curse the day he was conceived and the day he was born. He went through this agonizing struggle with the character of God and trying to understand and to grasp it. Here God says of Job, He spoke correctly about me. These men have not. Job did not need to be reminded of Eliphaz's character. He needed to be reminded of a sovereign God's character. What does that mean? When people are hurting, they don't need to know how good you are and how close you're walking to the Lord. They need to know about a sovereign God that's in the middle of it. It's going to get them through it. Sovereign God means that sovereign means that He's in control. I always remember years ago there was a woman who her husband had cancer and he was back in the ICU at Baptist Hospital. She was sitting, waiting, one of our members. It was the daughter of one of our members. It was Eva's daughter, Melba. Melba had been there like 40-something days in the ICU waiting room. She was sitting there one day. She had been back to visit Jerry, her husband, and she came back and she just collapsed in the chair. She began to cry. When all of a sudden a sweet African-American older lady came by, she put her hand, I'll never forget her words. She came, she put her hand. She also had been in that ICU. She also was grieving. She also was going through the loss of a family member. She put her hand on Melba and she said these words and I'll never forget them. She smiled. She said, oh honey. She said, God ain't never out of control. This preacher, that's probably been 15 years ago. I never forgot that statement. Nor I doubt Melba ever did. 
Sometimes people need to be reminded that God is sovereign in this. God, you're in control. But He doesn't do that. Eliphaz, in some ways, I believe, dropped the ball. He gave the wrong advice. He began to focus on his own goodness rather than God's. And by verse 17, he's coming to false theological conclusions. He says, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust... He just begins to rattle away theology, but his theology is not sound. He begins to insinuate at some point that Job is under discipline. Job is not being disciplined for what he was doing wrong. Job is being tested for what he was doing right. That's what he needed to hear. I wrote, obedience is important. Choices carry consequences. But the danger when we don't counsel and we start condemning somebody, we are trying a person without enough information. Does that make sense? Sometimes when people are down and people are hurting, our response is we kind of come to them, but maybe we don't know what they're going through. Maybe we don't know all of the circumstances. And we begin to make false conclusions. We go with misinformation. You know, I have people all the time who tell me uh, in preaching a funeral, People will say to me, they'll say, well, you know, I think the problem often is is that people, that you preachers are preaching people into heaven. That you're positive, you're preaching people into heaven. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Listen closely. When you send me to a family member, you send me to make a visit, or you ask me to preach a funeral, and somebody has said to me, either on their sickbed, somebody has said to me at some point in their life, when I've asked them, are you a Christian? And they respond with an affirmative and yes. All that fruit inspecting stuff, that's a bunch of, I'm not going to say it, but that's what it is. When you're standing up there behind the pulpit and you're preaching a funeral, the only hope that you can give this family, if that person has said, I'm a Christian, I've given my life to Christ, then that's where you hang on to. That's what you go to. Listen, I don't want to preach anybody to heaven, but I don't want to preach them into hell either. I was, and I'll close with this. I got on, some of you don't like that. I don't get on Facebook often. But I wrote on Facebook, I'm not worried about the liberals destroying our president. The church can take care of that. I said to the liberals, by the time we, the church, get through with President Trump, there won't be enough of him left to attack. A lot of people are saying today and claiming to be Christians that where is his repentance? My answer on Facebook was this, his repentance is exactly where yours is and mine is, in our pride. Because how many of us repented for all the things we've said and done in our life. Now let me give you a a test. I want you to stand. Because I believe in this room, I've got a a group of counselors. Uh, If you're a Christian, you are filled with the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is called the counselor. So you are filled with the Spirit of Christ Therefore, you are filled with a spirit of counseling. So, first of all, I want to, are you ready? You ready for a test? Say amen. amen. Number one, are you ready to go out into this world, into your jobs, into your business, into your places, of wherever that service may be, in school, are you ready to go out and minister to hurting people? Are you ready to say to God this morning, God, I'm your counselor, and starting right now, God, give me the wisdom and the insight to begin to identify hurting people and begin to minister to them. If you are willing to do that, say, I do. Oh, wow. No wonder America's in trouble. That's right. No wonder we're in trouble. Number two. Are you learning what not to do as we go through this series? Are you learning what not to do when you're, when you're counseling? Say yes. 
A little better? Not much. Three, counselors, everyone standing. Are you certain beyond any doubt that you have repented of your sin? You have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you are now filled with His indwelling Holy Spirit. Say yes if you are. Say no if you're not. You may say, well, why say that? Because Jesus said that's probably the first key to getting saved. Number four, counselors, are you presently... It gets bad here now. This is the New Testament. This is the Old Testament survey class where the professor asks, takes you a half sheet of paper and then asks you who was the two midwives that delivered Moses. Shipron Pua. Number four, counselors, are you presently allowing that indwelling Holy Spirit to fill you according to Ephesians and Galatians, which means that you are under the control and living in the Lordship of Jesus Christ? If you are, say yes. Weak, but honest. Number five, counselors, are you presently grieving the Holy Spirit by the life that you live? Are you living in willful disobedience, therefore not only grieving, but quenching the Holy Spirit, and therefore are unable to counsel as God would have you to do so? Say yes or no. Really, really weak. And that's the church. And you just answered why. We, America, are in the shape that we're in. You just answered it. Let me read it again. Don't answer. Counselors, are you presently grieving the Holy Spirit by the life you live? Are you living in willful disobedience? Are you quenching the Holy Spirit and thereby you are unable to counsel as you should? Counselors, memorize this passage. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Paul says this, and I, my mind is blank, so I have to even look to get started. But before you laugh, you can... Yeah. Brethren, if a man is overtaken by a fault... Ye which are spiritual. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Did you hear it? Brothers, if a man or woman is overtaken in a fault, if they're hurting, if life has kicked them, if they've fallen down, ye which are, we're out. Really, what we ought to do is just, amen, go home. We're out. Because if we are grieving the Holy Spirit, if we're quenching the Holy Spirit by the life of disobedience, then we can't restore anyone. And restore means, in the Greek, means to set a bone. Ye which are spiritual, watch this, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Number one, are you saved? Number two, are we walking in obedience to the Holy Spirit? Number three, is God using us to be sensitive to the hurting people around us? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and Lord, we don't want to make the mistake of a man like Eliphaz. We don't want to look at people and Remind them of our character, our goodness, our spiritual position. We want to instead remind them of the character and the nature of God. And so we pray, dear Lord, today for people that... And that's the problem, Lord. Uh, It doesn't matter the phone. The reality is we're too distracted nowadays. TV, we can't even sit and eat a meal in a restaurant. 
have a romantic time with our spouse because the reality is, is TVs hang on every wall, even in our homes. But we're distracted, and because we're distracted, a lot of times we're not sensitive to the people that are hurting around us. But we pray, dear Lord, today that we would not make the mistakes of Eliphaz. That when people are hurting and they're struggling and we come alongside of them, may we remind them of the character of a sovereign God. May we remind them of the promises and a covenant-keeping God and the promises of His Word when people are hurting. God, may you use us as a tool, as a vessel, to encourage and minister to the broken and the hurting lives around us. Make us sensitive. Make us always aware it's not making a living. It's not making another dollar. It's not getting a job done. It's not getting through the day. Sometimes, dear Lord, you've divinely brought somebody into our life. And we're to take time from our schedules and take time from all the distraction to minister to them. So, Lord, we pray, dear Lord, and I prayed that if there's one here that is not a believer, not a Christian, they're not walking with you like they should. But, Lord, some may be here, they don't know you at all. When I asked and said, say no, they didn't say anything. They couldn't say yes. They just didn't know what to say. And so I pray, dear Lord, as you speak to the hearts of people, if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who says, Brother Jeff, I don't know whether I'm saved or not, but I want to settle this, and I want to settle it now. I pray, dear Lord, that they'll come. Take the hand of Reggie, Ledge, or myself, and say, I want to be saved, and I want to know it. I want to be a tool, counselor in the hand of God. For others in this room, it may be to get before God, to recommit, rededicate the life. God, I don't want to grieve your spirit. I don't want to quench it. I want you to use me, Lord. I want to be sensitive to the hurting people around me. Lord, speak to us, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.